Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the Storywallas series provides a stage for Puget Sound residents with roots in India and South Asia to tell stories. This time around, the theme concerned the question of belonging. In the era of making America great again, these stories help illuminate what it means to be great in the first place. KUOW, Prati Dwani, Tezvir, and ACT Theater teamed up to present the latest event in the series on April 23rd. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Here, the host of the series, Augusta Coley, starts things off. This is what we're going to do today. Storywalas is a joint uh, um, endeavor of our friends at KUOW, Pratidhwani and Tasveer, and by the virtue of us being in this building, ACT Theater. Um, so, so let me start there and by thanking ACT for hosting us this time and giving us a home for this evening. Um, thank you very much. And, and for those of you who do not know about the ACT Pass, you need to go home, get online, and find out about it. It is the best deal in theater in town, so check that out. I will tell you more about Pratidhwani and Tasveer as we go along. KURW, of course, um, is our beloved NPR station in town. Um, most of you know it as KURW. I know it as Kuwao, because that's what I like to call it. Um, and Storywalas is a little engine that is fueled by your stories. Your stories are the fuel for this evening, and you are our stars. So thank you for being here. Um, and if you have not signed up to tell a story and you would like to, that's where you do that. So at any time during the evening, it's preferably not while somebody is actually telling a story, but feel free to walk up, put your name in the hat. Well, write your name on a piece of paper and that piece of paper will end up in a hat. And at some point this evening, I will get that hat soon. It is literally a hat. In the past, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> Now we have a hat, and the, the hat has a bunch of names. And I will pick a name, and if that name happens to be you, I will ask you to come up here and, and tell us your story. You have about five minutes to tell your story. Four minutes into that, um, Caroline, who is sitting over there, will ding a bell, like that. And that will be your hint to start wrapping up the story. And if you don't get your story wrapped up in the next 60 seconds, at about five minutes, chances are Carolyn's gonna double ding you and probably look at you in a way that will scare the bejesus out of you. So by then, you should wrap up your story. That's, that's really it. And then I will come up here and I'll pick the next name from the hat and we'll keep doing this for the next 90 minutes or so. Um, no intermission, no breaks, lots of storytelling, and hopefully we'll all have fun. Okay, so like I said, my name is Agastya Kohli. I lead the drama wing of Pratithwani. And well, I come from India specifically Punjab in India. And if you asked my father where he was from, he would probably say, we Kohli's belong to Punjab. Belong, well, belonging, that's our theme. And that's where I'm going with this. So do I belong to Punjab? I grew up in Delhi, uh, I visited Punjab, but I never really lived there. And I don't like onions in my food. <laughs> I don't like deep fried food too much. My white American wife eats spicier food than I do. So, you know, if you asked a Punjabi, they would tell you, I don't belong to Punjab. <laughs> so belonging, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated situation. Can you belong in a relationship if the other side of that relationship says you don't belong? Can I belong to a place even if the place doesn't belong to me? And vice versa? 
I don't know. So, so I grew up in Delhi, then I moved to Chicago, and I was there for my bachelor's. And, and the year I started at Illinois Tech was one of the largest classes that, uh, that Illinois Tech had had in terms of incoming freshmen. And they had a little musical chairs game that they had to play in terms of finding a dorm room for everybody who was coming in. Eventually, when people would pledge to fraternities and move out of the dorms, they, they knew they would have enough room for everyone. But until that point, they had to do something. So the housing department at the university actually rented rooms for the fraternities um, and put some of the incoming freshmen in those frat houses on campus. I happened to be one of those kids. And I was 18, I was new to the US, I was unfamiliar with the American university system. I sure as heck didn't know what a fraternity was. And I was in this room the first night I spent in Chicago and let me tell you, my gut instinct was I don't belong. Right? This, this is not what, what I was expecting. And I say my gut instinct because, you know, had I spent a considerable or any significant amount of time there, my opinion would have evolved, it would have probably changed and I would have felt differently, but I didn't have that opportunity. Soon enough, they were able to move me into the dorms and there, there were 150 other Indian students who had either come in with my class or, um, or were there already from previous years. And they, in addition to the university orientation that was going on, they gave us the Indian orientation that we needed. Um, and I felt at home, right? There was no reason to be homesick. There was no reason to be worried. There was no sense of I'm lost or I don't know what to do next. We were well taken care of. One of uh, the guys who was there who became a really good friend of mine later on lent me Tide so I could do laundry right away. <laughs> I belonged. There was no problem. After graduation, I moved to Dallas and I got a job there. And Dallas, Texas, it's a different kind of place. And what I discovered is that I could win no argument with anybody, even if we were talking about how many isotopes of uranium there are and which one has a greater half-life and which one has a less half-life, because my Mazda protege was smaller than their Ford F-250. <laughs> I certainly did not belong. I moved to Seattle, first week I was in Bellevue, went to Crossroads, there was a jazz thing going on on stage in Marketplace and, and people were playing chess on this huge gigantic floor. I belonged all of a sudden. <laughs> anyway, so I guess I'm not really telling you a story. What I'm, what I'm saying is it is unclear to me what it means to belong. And thank God we have this evening dedicated to the theme because our story wallahs are going to tell us what it means, I hope. Of course, in this political climate recently, lately, there's been a lot of discussion amongst immigrant communities of belonging, and I wouldn't be surprised if we explore that a little bit too, but there can be many different ways to belong or not, uh, and everything in between. So let's get started. Um, without a hat here, which I will come get in a minute, I'm just going to ask Sheba Jacobs to come up here and tell us her story. I have no idea what she's going to say, but here's Sheba. So my father once told the story of when he was seven years old growing up in a small town in Kerala, India, and Chaka was the name of the chief cook who worked alongside my dad's mom. My dad used to come from school and the first thing he would yell out was, what do we have for snacks? And he never liked spicy food. He would complain to Chaka about the snacks. And my grandmother would get so mad at him and say, you should go to America. There's no spicy food there. And he also told the story of when he was accepted into medical school in Padua, Italy, and his journey started in the fall of 1960 on a boat called the Oceana. 
And ironically, while they served him plates and plates of this delicious Italian spaghetti, he countered the non-spicy taste with a little bit of mango pickle he snuck on the ship. And I have these countless memories from childhood when we would get McDonald's and the first thing my dad would do when we got home was deconstruct his quarter pounder with cheese, put the burger on the skillet, and add a little bit of spice for flavor. So these days I see how the adding of cumin and coriander is this attempt to stay connected to home, thousands of miles away, to feel this sense of belonging when all other things may feel just a little too foreign. Whenever we migrate, we take this bit of ourselves to our new homes, our histories, our stories, and ourselves. And we imagine this homeland. And Zadie Smith says it beautifully. She says, homeland is one of those magical fantasy words like unicorn and soul and infinity that have now passed into our language. In the year 2004, I was living in Bangalore, India, and I found myself acting very similar to my father. I had a friend mail me Italian spices so my roommate and I could cook this precious food from our homeland. And we would watch bootlegged versions of Sex in the City and buy bootlegged bottles of wine so we could feel American. At the same time, there was something simmering below the oregano and basil, and I realized the more I spent time in India, the more I felt like I belonged. And sure, those first few months were full of confusion and cultural miscommunications and a longing for comfort, but as time passes and we occupy these new spaces, we just begin to transform. So I found one of my last journal entries before I left the country, and it was sharing how, yep, I'm at Juni Chechi's right now after visiting my dad's side of the family, having a cousin's reunion. I get back to Chicago on May 1st, and I believe the first few weeks I'm going to be in somewhat of a daze. And then I proceeded to cheers. And I said, to my amazing students, Raj, the store vendor in Jaipur who spoke Spanish, Hindi, and English, to afternoon naps with my amma as warm rains poured heavily outside, to street kids and their intellect, to toddy tappers in the land of the coconut, carved out stories of Ram and Sita, and to a thousand stars in a Kerala village, to a whole country being amused. And when I reintegrated back into the States, I longed for this other world, so much that when I ret returned back to New York City, I would yearn for Indo-Chinese food and often tell my sixth grade students stories from my time in India. I witnessed my father doing this as he told stories about Italy when we were in America. These places we resettle, they grow on us, whether we like it or not, and if possible, I realize we just begin to make these places in our hearts for them too. And in these best of times, we're malleable and we adapt to our circumstances, and our heart actually feels that sense of belonging. And in the best of times, the relationship actually feels symbiotic. These new homelands welcome us, and over time, there's these stories of isolation that get removed and resistance gets removed too for stories of wonder, belonging, and hope. And I'm so thankful India and I were ready for each other just like Italy was ready for my dad. So here we are today, immigrants, children of immigrants, grandchildren of immigrants living in this United States of America. And we use a variety of spices to remind our palates and our hearts that there is this other magical homeland we don't want to forget, lest we forget ourselves. And at the same time, we really want to live here. So what do we do when this geopolitical space we're occupying right now may be trying to convince us this place is not our homeland? What do we do when suddenly new homelands don't welcome us? I say we cheers. So cheers to Spanish Harlem in New York City where you can get mango on a popsicle stick carved out into a tulip. 
to Devon Street in Chicago, where India and Pakistan finally have a chance to shake hands and live peacefully together, to incredible parents who come here with dreams for their children, to the red, white, to the red, white, and blue, and the brown, cinnamon, honey, the black, the yellow, and the gold, to my former student, Jorge, who had to cross fronteras in the middle of the night and finally end up on US soil, to the mixture of broken speak, of English, Spanish, French, Creole, of Tagalog, Malayalam, of Hindi, to the blues song that sings ever so softly around the horizon of a bayou, to that mural on Rainier Ave where the painter intentionally put a splash of burnt yellow in the upper left corner that sparks that fire internally in ourselves, to that fire in all of us that allows us to re-envision and recreate stories in instead of accepting the ones told to us, to upholding what the character of this country was meant to be, soulful, determined, strong, multidimensional, hybrid, complex, Poetic, profound. Cheers. I think we could all belong to something like this. Thank you. I already picked out a name from the hat, but I had to prove it to you. I have a hat. Uh, Michael Pereira, come on up. Uh, his story is about leaving home to move to the US. So just to be clear, I am actually the first person, so there's absolutely no pressure on this. Um, I really find it difficult to talk about where I'm from. When people ask me that question, I get a lot. I try to avoid the question. I try to avoid the answer, so I'll see what I can do here. I am Sri Lankan, but I was born in Dubai. I have a vaguely American accent, but it sounds slightly British, enough so that people think I'm sexy or smart, but only one at a time. So the question becomes, for me, where is home? Or to put it another way, where do I belong? My passport says I'm Sri Lankan, but I don't speak the language. I've never lived there for any period of time. I don't know the customs or the culture, and even my parents don't want me to move back there. I have a birth certificate that was issued by a hospital in Dubai, but I don't know the language there. And not being an Emirati citizen, I cannot legally go back to that country. I've been in the United States since 2003, but for over a decade, the immigration system has been squeezing and strangling me in one way or another to the point where I have to wonder, do I even belong here? I've been here since 2003, but is this my home? For the first five years that I lived in Washington State, I had two different jobs. I was going to grad school, I had a car, I had an apartment, and I had it made. I thought I had everything I needed. But, as is usually the case, things stopped working, one thing at a time. Um, I got laid off from the first job I had. The second job I had, um, my boss turned out to be legitimately crazy. Um, I spent all my life savings on immigration options that didn't work. I lost my car, I lost the apartment, and then I had to live for five long years in a tiny studio room, and I had to do work that I found absolutely meaningless. I could have, there were times I wanted to quit. There were times I wished I could have gone anywhere else, but I couldn't go back to Dubai. I didn't want to go back to Sri Lanka, and I was too broke to go anywhere else. And I found myself wondering if I really belonged anywhere. But for some reason, and maybe it was because I had no other option, I stayed in Seattle. And Seattle became a place that I liked 
to be. Seattle became a place where I wanted to be. After years of wondering if I was fated to live in that tiny studio room, I moved to, I moved to a beautiful neighborhood just on the doorstep of the University of Washington. When I wondered if I would do nothing but work in those meaning, meaningless jobs, completely insubstantial, I came into my own as a writer and a researcher. And after years of loneliness and heartbreak, I found community and friends that gave me a sense of purpose and that gave me a sense of belonging. A few weeks ago, I went to Citizen University at Town Hall, Seattle. And at the end of the event, all of us in the audience, we got up and we all sang along to This Land is Your Land. Now, I'm not American. I was not born in the United States. So I don't have that connection to the song that many people here might have. But there was a line in the song that really struck out to me. And it went something like, there was a big wall and on it was painted private property. But on the other side was painted nothing. And that side was made for you and me. And I thought, I have a connection to that song now. And that's what belonging is. It's a special, unique kind of connection to a person, to an idea, or to a place. Belonging doesn't come easily. And these days when people say things like, are you here legally? Or when they say, say things like, go back to where you came from, it becomes harder and harder to find a place where you belong. You realize that you have a different skin color. You have a different accent. You even have a different name. So belonging doesn't come easily, but maybe it shouldn't. If we really and truly belong to a place, it takes time and it takes effort. It takes, time, uh, it, it takes patience and sacrifice. And to belong to somewhere means uncertainty and it could mean hostility. But if I've learned anything about belonging, it's not just that you find a place you love. That's the easy part. Belonging is where the place loves you back and it makes your life better in so many different ways, and you would not be anywhere else in the world but here. Belonging means singing along to an American folk song that's been around so much longer than I have, but realizing I have a voice in that song. Belonging means finding people, special people, who accept you and welcome you with open hearts and open arms. Belonging means coming to a place like this where we can tell stories and we can hear each other's stories and share what it means and share and celebrate what it means to belong. Recently, we've all been wondering what makes America great. But I think something like this reminds me that belonging is what makes America great. And that's why I am so happy to be here. Thank you. As I mentioned earlier, um, Storywellas is a, is a collaboration between KUW, Tasveer, and Pratidhwani. Um, Rita Mayer, who runs Tasveer, is unfortunately not here tonight, but she sent me an email, and I will tell you what she wants me to tell you. Tasveer is a nonprofit film and arts organization whose mission is to inspire social change through thought-provoking film, art, and storytelling. Don't miss their next event, Tasveer Reels on April 28th, which is Friday, and we will come back and talk about that date a little bit more later, uh, at Bellevue Arts Museum called Talim, a film made by local filmmaker Jonathan Kumar. To find out more about their event, please go to tasveer.org. That's T-A-S-V-E-E-R.org. All right.
Um, next up, Madhura Nirke. And her story is titled, Speak the Language. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Madhura Nirke. I'm a computer scientist by profession and an artist at heart. Years ago, many of us, we left the Indian subcontinent and came to this new land. Our status changed gradually from student visas or work visas to green card holders, and some of us even bit the bullet and became American citizens, eventually. But our language, which is deep-rooted in our experiences, didn't quite make it all the way. There is a definite lag, one that I'm convinced is no fault of ours. Language is nothing but words that are used to describe experiences and feelings. If they don't belong to this land, why do we expect our language to? I have a fascination for words and often muse over why Indians use language the way they do and why Indians understand each other perfectly, but our words often leave our non-Indian friends so puzzled. For example, my grandmother used to say that there are some words in the Indian language, my mother tongue being Marathi, that have no parallels in English. One such word is a head bath. What is a head bath? It is a long ritual that used to fill my Sunday mornings, mostly with my mother tugging at my hair as she used two extra buckets of hot water to wash off the homemade herbal shikakai extract, which is kind of a, a, an herbal shampoo from my hair. It used to get into your eyes and they would tear up constantly. How do I describe a head bath to someone, right? <laughs> there is another concept which in Hindi we say is jhuta. Jhuta means if, um, in, in Marathi we say ushta, which means if you are eating with the same spoon that I'm eating with, I say, don't eat that, that is juta. That isn't quite the same thing as dirty. It's not dirty, it's juta. <laughs> think about, I think about the way when I used to put my kids to bed and realize that Indian parents do this very differently from American parents. American parents tuck their kids in bed, give them a good night kiss, and then the kids are on their own. We Indian parents don't do that. We put them to sleep, literally. So, you know, you take, you, you have the child on your lap and you pat them. You pat them incessantly until they get into this state of stupor <laughs> where sleep sort of seems like the most welcome escape to the child. <laughs> or we resorted immediately to singing the lullabies that we knew of. Now, remember that in each of these songs, there is a deep-rooted concept called Nindya Rani. Nindya Rani is the queen of slumber. And she is this naughty, obstinate, hard-to-get queen who has to be enticed by sweet words one after the other to make an appearance. So all the songs say, Dheere se ajare me, slowly come to the eyes of the little one, O slumber queen. So then how can you blame Indians for when they use phrases like, no matter what I do, sleep is just not coming to me. 
not coming reminds me of the present continuous tense that we have such an obsession for. <laughs> we are a nation that lives in the present and savors every moment of it in our speech. So to answer the most unsuspecting question, uh, if somebody asks you, do you have kids? You might get a response from an Indian, I am having three children. <laughs> to which my immediate gut reaction is, oh my God, right this moment? <laughs> Triplets? Seriously? We Indians are perpetually having a cold, taking a bath, giving an exam, which means actually taking an exam, perpetually. Although I must admit that in the current state of mind that I am in with the current political situation, it can be best described as I am having serious problems with the current president. <laughs> I am losing my peace of mind, a perpetual persistent state most appropriate for use in the present continuous tense. <laughs> Idioms and slang, pop culture jokes are completely you know, foreign to, to us when we come from India. We really can't understand what, what you guys say for the first few years. For example, there is this conversation uh, between two people where one person says, these days I drive to the gym every morning trying to lose my spare tire, you know. To which the Indian response is spare tire? You mean the stepney? Which thanks to the British, you know, is the word for the spare tire on your car, the tire number five. To which you might get the response, yeah, trying step aerobics these days, kind of hard on the knees, you know. <laughs> so, I, I know I have just a minute, so I'm going to conclude. Uh, basically, there is one word that I find it very easy to describe, what Indians describe when they are in the middle of two states, when they can't decide, you know, what, what it is that they want. For example, we use the word come, which means sofa come bed. When you don't want to buy either a sofa or a bed, you buy a sofa come bed. We say it is a cafe come shop. So you can go there, have a cup of coffee, and also buy something. So in that vein, I think I am an American come Indian. Take it for what it is. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to segue into this little story from Madhura's uh, discussion about language. I read an article a number of years ago where uh, an Indian person who had just recently come to the US went to a, a restaurant. And when he was done eating, um, he called the waiter and said, can I get the bill? And the waiter said, no, I'll give you the check. You'll give me the bill. <laughs> so here we go. Um, before I, I ask the next story weller to come up here and tell us a story, I want to talk about Pratidhwani real quick. And I, and I promised you that um, we will revisit the issue of April 28th, which happens to be this coming Friday, which is also the opening night performance for Pratidhwani's dance drama, Chitrangada, which will actually, which has taken place, uh, present tense, uh, present continuous, uh, in this building, three floors above us. So in the Allen upstairs, uh, Chitrangada, a dance drama written by India's first Nobel laureate, Rabindranath Tagore, um, is being performed, will be performed starting the 28th. It'll run four weekends. Now that all of you have figured out how to come to act, where to park, uh, where do you eat before the show, you, just, you can just do it again. It's that simple now. This was considered this dress rehearsal on your behalf, on your part. 
for Chitrangada. Um, like I said, um, it'll run for weeks. Um, visit the Pratidhwani website, P-R-A-T-I-D-H-W-A-N-I.org, um, and catch me later if you can't remember that. Um, all right. Um, I will mention Chitrangada multiple times throughout the night because I've been told it takes seven attempts before things stick. So, <laughs> um, Amish Dave, uh, his only memory of second grade belonging. So thank you so much. So growing up in the Chicago suburbs as an Indian American kid, um, I wanted to belong in my class more than anything else. I grew up awkward as one of only three Indian American, really Asian kids in my school. And my best friend was my brother. My mother was a physician and very much as a radiologist insisted that anything we do would break our bones. So we were not allowed to swim. We were not allowed to ride bikes. We were not allowed to play football or soccer. It was really awkward in general. I think that we were allowed to play chess because you couldn't figure out any way that we could possibly break our carpal bones doing that. Um, and we were shuttled around from one temple to another to prayer services, things called bujas that many uh, Indian American kids have some very strong memories about. But the weirdest thing about my brother, about my mother, was that she also had very strong opinions about how to raise um, kids. So my mom believed that all kids in her family, and this is a family tradition of hers, needed to have rhyming names. So my name was Amish, my brother's name was Manish, and she had family members, Ale Male, who were her brothers. Um, one of them had uh, daughters, Krunal and Runal. Um, and so it was very awkward because whenever my mom or my dad would call us in front of our friends, it was Amish Manish, you know, and so um, Amish Manish, come here. And so it was hard to not only feel like you belonged in your class, it was hard to feel like you had a sense of place in your own family because in a sense my brother and I blended so closely together with our names being so similar to one another. The, the other things about my mom is that she believed that she needed to pick out our clothes also. And so my brother and I had to wear matching sweats most of the time. And so we would ma wear matching sweatshirts and sweatpants that either be red or green, blue, various colors. And so as we would go to school, kids would take bets on what type of clothes we would wear or what color of clothes we would wear also. Because it was always sweats. It was just what color of clothes we'd wear. And we got a little bit frustrated with this. And so somewhere in second grade, I must have told my mom, you know, mom, I just would really like to wear something different than sweats. And I don't want to wear the same thing as my brother, who's one year behind me. And so my mom said, sure. Um, I think that we can find a great outfit for you, and you'll love it. And so one day she put out a t-shirt for me and also um, a new pair of shorts, and I was sent to school. And I remember you know, waiting on my cul-de-sac for the school bus to come by, and I get on the bus with my brother at my, um, my um, uh, Thomas the Train Engine uh, lunchbox, and all of a sudden the bus driver starts snickering and breaks out laughing. And all the kids on the school bus upon seeing me start breaking out laughing. And I sit in my seat mortified, just kind of like hiding uh, my face and my, uh, in my books and um, my book sack, and then get off the bus and walk into class. And I remember you know, walking that linoleum tiled uh, stair, uh, that hallway um, through my second grade class, and everyone just turning around and starts breaking out laughing, um, all the kids. And then as teachers start looking to see what the commotion was, they start opening up their doors to look outside. 
they just start staring at me and literally start bursting out laughing. Some of them putting their hands to their face, their faces turning bright red. And I went to my homeroom and I just sat down in my seat and literally everyone was kind of snickering, staring at me. And my teacher, you know, um, tried to hold the course of the, the attention of the class. Um, this went on for a couple of hours and at some point, um, I guess one of the other teachers must have told the principal and the principal shows up the door. And I was so mortified by this. I was told like the worst thing ever is that the principal calls you to take you to his office. And so I get pulled out of my room and I go to the principal's office. And um, literally, you know, this was in the middle of a class break, so everyone's still laughing at me as I walk over to the principal's office. And the principal sits me down at, um, in the chair in front of his desk. I'm staring at him and he's like, I don't think you really understand what happened here. Um, you know, how did you decide on this outfit? And I was like, well, my mom decided to, um, you know, pick this outfit for me. I, I had no clue. And he's like, you know, someday you'll understand this, but, you know, your t-shirt says, um, I'm having a Mylanta moment. And that's probably why all the teachers are laughing at you, because my mom, as a physician, gets all, got all these free t-shirts from pharmaceutical companies and decided that this was the best t-shirt ever for me. And growing up in like this very like closed off Indian American family, I thought all underwear were fruit of the loom briefs. And my mom had found a pair of boxers with the American flag all over it. And so she'd sent me to school with American flag boxers and I'm having a Mylanta moment t-shirt. <laughs> and this was mortifying. And so I realized as someone who had a difficult time finding a place of belonging, at that moment, I'd found a unifying theme across all of the teachers and all of the students, um, which was the, the, the strong feeling um, as uh, my mom was called in for a parent-teacher conference the next day <laughs> and educated about the appropriateness of um, what, what she's sending her kids to wear. Um, that, and after that, it led to um, a change in um, how I felt like I was belonging in second grade. Thank you so much. I do not have anything that can segue from that to anything that I was going to say. So I'm just going to ask our next speaker to come up. Um, this is Jay Jaisima. Come on up. And his, the short description of his story here says, and this is the only reason I'm inviting him now. So if, if you want to be called up, write something interesting and then put it in the, in the hat. Um, how Anne Ryan and Upton Sinclair convinced me I belong in America. So years ago, I was a rebellious teenager, I guess for some of us, more years than others. And I discovered how powerful ideas can be. And really the idea I'm talking about is America. I realize I'm hardly the first teenager to think uh, that his parents were from another planet or that uh, I was always misunderstood or that you know, what India was or uh, the kind of society and values I was surrounded by was not for me. Uh, I really felt discontented with it. And I was thinking about, hey, why am I uncomfortable? I'm probably not. Uh, you know, wasn't mature enough to realize why. But then I found a book, like many other things in my life. And this book was in the American Central Library. And horror of horrors, that first book I read 
was the fountainhead. <laughs> so here I am reading the fountainhead and it's all about me, me, me. It's all about the individual. And I said, wow, this sounds great. I'm a teenager. I want life to be about me. Then I picked up Upton Sinclair, The Jungle. <laughs> Pretty soon I was reading about problems in meatpacking plants. The next uh, really uplifting book I picked after that was Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> now you might be wondering why this list of you know, rather uplifting books was going to put me on a plane to America or why I wanted to come here. But then I discovered uh, Taylor Branch's Parting the Waters, started reading about Martin Luther King, how the country changed, and I realized that there was something about this place. And what I realized was that it was all about how quickly things changed. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, but always back again for the better. How things, how people made room for dreamers, people like me to come in and make a home for myself. I thought, now this is a place I think I could belong to. Years went by, I came to Seattle, and um, a couple years later, I had a chance to make a business phone call to someone in the UK. After I said hello, she says, are you calling from the United States, sir? And I was so excited. I thought, wow, this is great. My accent is changing. I'm assimilated. <laughs> but you know, every now and then I'd run into people who would ask me that favorite, or actually least favorite question that every non-white immigrant gets asked. So, where are you from? Or my other personal favorite, so what is your favorite Indian restaurant? <laughs> A part of me wants to scream, have I not worked hard enough to fit in? What did I get wrong? Is my English not good enough? Or do my clothes betray my immigrant origins? What will it take for you to stop asking? Why aren't you asking me what my favorite Italian restaurant is? or my favorite Vietnamese restaurant, or where I like to eat steak. Don't worry, these are all with my inside voice. I never ask people these questions. <laughs> I realize that my reaction is probably more about me than it is about the people doing the asking. It's probably that little feeling of insecurity. Am I welcome? Is this really where I belong? And it's a lot more about people trying really hard to relate to me with the open-minded, but sometimes naive curiosity, that is one of the most endearing American qualities. So about 30 years later, I feel as American as I can possibly feel. I cheer for American teams. Most of my closest friends are native-born Americans. I've raised my kids to be American. They still eat rice and dal, of course, but meatloaf and soccer and the Boy Scouts and Macklemore are all on the menu. But still, the questions linger. Just this afternoon, my teenage son described one of his teammates as looking American. And the feelings of insecurity come boiling up. I asked him belligerently, poor kid, he's only 13, just talking about his team. What do you mean American? Do you really mean Caucasian? Don't you consider yourself American? Do you realize that Americans come in many different colors? 
what is it going to take for you to feel like this is your country? This happened three hours ago at my house. You know you're not really Indian, don't you? All you've done is visited the country and eaten the food. A part of me is really concerned and worried about their future and how things will go for them. Will people ever stop asking them, where are you from? Will my sons feel like this is their country? And then there's a part of me that wonders if I'm just overthinking it all. Just a week ago, I was at Disney World in Florida. And it was the first time I'd been in the South since the election. And I ran into people from practically every state of every color, and I'm certain of every political persuasion, including probably people who voted for him. And I'm sure, I'm sure you'll never guess the first question I asked them. I asked them, where are you from? <laughs> of course, eventually they turned around and asked me where I was from. And I proudly answered Seattle. And guess what? No one blinked. All they asked me was, so cool, what was your favorite ride? <laughs> and that's America for you. It's a salad of people, you know, and ideas and experiences, all of us living a dream and looking to have a good time. In short, a place I'd love to belong. Thank you. So this business of where are you from reminds me of three things that I want to share with you very quickly. One is Short Circuit. How many people remember that movie from the 80s? Uh, and there's a scene early on in the, in the movie where, where the Indian guy, by the way, not played by an Indian actor, um, <laughs> is asked, he, he goes, uh, uh, he says, where are you from? And in his very fake, very bad Indian accent, he says, you mean originally? And he says, yes, I mean originally. And he goes, oh, Pittsburgh. Um, <laughs> And that, that has just sort of stayed with me, is that, yeah, originally Pittsburgh, because that's all you need to know. Um, the, the other two things I've forgotten now, where are you from? Um, I don't know, they'll come back to me, it's a long show. Okay, um, I, uh, there's a completely different story, though, that, that I was just thinking of in terms of belonging in a completely different context. Back in 2008, I did a play with a company called Live Girls Theater, um, which at the time had their own venue in Ballard, um, and the play was called Love Person. It was, um, Love Person. It was a bilingual play in English and ASL, American Sign Language. The play had four characters, one of which was uh, a deaf character, which in our production was played by a deaf actor. Um, and the other two characters were related to the deaf character, so her lover and her sister. And by virtue of that relationship with her, those characters also signed throughout the play. And so the actors who were cast in that uh, were also signers. And then there was me, who, because it had not come across uh, my, my life path in any way, I had not yet learned ASL. And there I was. And so we'd be sitting in the green room before the show, and the three of them would be having a conversation, signing, of course, and I couldn't understand a word of what they were saying, and so I would pull out my Blackberry at the time and hide on my phone because I couldn't be a part of the conversation. I didn't belong in that conversation, and all of a sudden I went, holy crap, who can't follow the conversation now? Who's the deaf one in this room, right? So, so it was an interesting situation, which of course the other three actors very quickly realized that 
I was the outsider. Um, and, and then, you know, we started to have bilingual conversations where they would speak and sign at the same time. And when I, when I said anything, one of the three would, would sign for the deaf uh, actor in the room. Um, and we had a great time. It was a wonderful production. Too bad if you didn't see it, you missed it. It was, it was a great show. Um, speaking of great shows, uh, our next speaker is Meenakshi, who, who has done a couple of great shows herself, including Dance Like a Man right here on, right, on this stage back in 2015. Meenakshi, her story is titled Potato. I didn't prepare anything. I didn't know whether my name would be called. Uh, so these are my notes. Um, belonging, yeah. Uh, I actually belong in this room, in the Bullet Theater. I've done two shows for the act in, in this, on this very stage. Um, one of them was Dance Like a Man that Agastya alluded to, where uh, the character, and so I'm, sense, I'm, I'm seized with a sense of longing that is part of belonging right now. Uh, Ratna uh, was the main character that I played in that, um, and she, um, didn't belong to anything, but she belonged to her own fame. And another character I played um, in a Mother in Another Language, which was 2010, I believe, I played Meena Kanwar, who belonged to Bangladesh, but she moves to a brownstone in New York. Her son promptly puts her in a basement, and she goes about the process of learning to belong to her new country um, and ends up uh, having an affair with her Italian handyman. So it was pretty nice. Um, <laughs> That was a good character. So I, I really don't know what belonging meant when, when this thing came out, that Story Wallace was going to focus on belonging. I kept trying to think of what, what does it mean to belong? Um, and then my mother-in-law's words echoed in my mind, which is kind of a scary thing in itself. Uh, but she, she calls me uh, a potato. You know, the humble alu potato, kato felt, right. And this is why she calls me a potato. She, you know, what is a potato? A potato can be added anywhere, and it quantitatively enhances the dish. But it qualitatively doesn't lose its essence. So how many of you think that you're potatoes? You can be put in any situation, and you belong. There you go, three. Well, thank you, potatoes. We're all potatoes, and to the potatoes of the world I see, potatoes of the world unite. <laughs> you have nothing to lose, but maybe a little bit of your skin. Thank you. <laughs> Meenakshi Rishi, also known as the queen of the pun. Um, I still can't think of what, what the other two things were about, about where you're from. So let me just plug Chitrangada again, right? So Chitrangada is uh, starting, is opening April 28th. They're in tech right now in Allen. They've been working uh, all weekend long. Um, for those of you who are ActPass holders, of course, you can just reserve your tickets uh, free of charge. For those of you who are not ActPass holders, uh, maybe you are aware, maybe you're not, that there is an online charge to buy tickets if you do it online. But while you're in the building, just run upstairs to the box office tonight and get your tickets, and then you save all of that money too. So, uh, Chitrangada by Pratidhwani uh, in the Allen, opening Friday 28th. I've done it twice now. Um, okay, our next speaker is Jayant. I don't have a last name here, so hopefully there's only one Jayant in the room. Um, uh, and the story is titled two, uh, A Tale of Two Cities. Here we go.
Yes, hello everyone. Uh, when I came in, I was kind of feeling like Meenakshi. I wasn't really planning to talk today because and I just wanted to sit and listen. And uh, the reason is belonging. You know, the word is so innocuous. I don't think I ever thought about it. Or, or maybe it's, it's, you know, it's just there, right? It's just inherent. You don't really call it out. But then sitting here and then suddenly listening and hearing that word more than three times in the first minute, something happened. I said, you know what? I'm in my mid-50s and I've only lived in two cities, two-thirds of my life in Bangalore and another third in Seattle. And believe it or not, I don't think of myself as Indian or American. I think of myself as being a Bangalorean and now a Seattleite. So that was the aha when I felt, you know, okay, let me just go share this with all the wonderful people here. Now, going back to Bangalore, growing up in the 60s, I don't know, uh, I, I really don't know the reason I'm so attached to that city. I never lived anywhere else. And what used to happen, the only memory I have, what may have caused it, when I used to go to school, and those days, you know, I mean, you have all these kids, and one question we were all asked is, what is your native place? It really means, you know, that little town or village where your family originated and then you moved to Bangalore. Now, I had no answer. I was like, Bangalore. But the teachers would be, no, you cannot be from Bangalore. You, everybody has a native place. Go find out. <laughs> I went home, and we lived in a huge joint family those days. So I asked my dad, I asked my grandfather, and they all said, no, it's Bangalore. So it turned out that my grandfather, or maybe his father, great-grandfather, they had settled in Bangalore in the early 1900s. So back I went, and I told everybody that my native place is Bangalore. So ever since, you know, I've kind of seen myself as this hardcore Bangalorean. <laughs> and, and then somewhere, I think, in mid and I don't know whether it was arrogance or just laid back, because those of you who know Bangaloreans will know that we are a very laid back <laughs> breed of people. So when I, I want to do an MBA, and, and those days India had three top business schools. They were, they were in Ahmedabad, Ahmedabad, Calcutta, Bangalore, ABC. And, and most people, you know, it was like a status symbol to even get into one of these, and they would cover their wrists and apply to all three. And I would look at people and say, no, I'm only applying to Bangalore. If I don't get in there, I won't go. I won't do an MBA. I don't know. I don't know where it was coming from, but that's kind of how I was. <laughs> and then things changed. You know, suddenly after I turned 35, I'm like, oh my god, all my life, I've lived in one city. What about perspective? And there is a term in Sanskrit that's called kupamanduk. It just means a frog in the well, which kind of thinks the well is the world. And, and suddenly I was like bitten by this fear, like, okay, I'm not going to end up in my life as a kupamanduk or whatever. <laughs> and, and then it so happened, whatever, my wife and I, we made a decision. We moved to Seattle. And believe it or not, two weeks here, and I felt Seattle was home. And I'm a very sun person. I kind of meant inwardly believe that I could have a seasonal afflicted depression if I don't see the sun. But living in Seattle, even for the two weeks, I found, you know, I love my snow-capped mountains. I love the picture perfectness. I love the water. And in many ways, Seattle is like Bangalore. For one, Bangalore is very metropolitan. 
And Seattle, I found in the two weeks, I was working on one floor in T-Mobile, which was then called VoiceStream. I met people from 20 or 25 countries in, on one little floor. How much more cosmopolitan can you get? <laughs> and then the weather, of course. So Bangalore, the joke is you have four seasons. You see all of them every day. <laughs> Seattle is not that far from the truth, right? We've seen days where it snowed in the morning, you've seen the sun come out a couple of hours later, and then you've gone back to cloud. So all this, and then there was no going back. So I see myself as a hardcore Seattleite, and believe it or not, I still go to Bangalore very often, and a few weeks is good, but afterwards, it's not that I don't feel I belong there. I kind of get this longing to be back in Seattle. And so that's really what it is. Thank you. If, if you're thinking of telling a story and you haven't filled out one of these slips yet, go ahead and do it right now. Now is your chance. Now is one of your many chances, but now is your chance. Um, now is a chance. I, I remember at least a second of where are you from. So it has to do with, again, going back to Chicago. And, and when I first moved into that dorm room, um, you know, I had uh, an American roommate who I didn't know at all. And he obviously didn't know me, and, but the only thing he could probably tell about me very clearly that I was not from Chicago. And so he asked me, where are you from? Um, and I, you know, at the time, I, the baggage of that question of where are you from, I didn't have that baggage. I, was, I just landed. Um, so obviously I was not from here, it was no big deal. And I said, I'm from, from India, from Delhi. And then I didn't know what to ask him. Like, I didn't know how to carry this conversation forward. And of course, you're supposed to get to know your roommate. And, and I panicked, and I, and I said, where are you from? And, and I felt stupid, because of course he was from America. But, and he goes, I'm from California. I was like, oh, it turns out that that's a valid legal question to ask <laughs> anyone in this country, because no one is really from wherever you are. And, and then, of course, you move to Seattle and you find out that there are so many people from Seattle and a lot of people not from Seattle. But even, even the people who are from here and you go, where are you from? And they go, I brought up here. I'm like, oh, okay, that's legit, right? So it turns out that that is one of the things that we always want to know about people uh, in terms of where they're from. Uh, I guess we're trying to figure out where they belong so we can put them in a bucket and judge them accordingly. Because <laughs> um, that's important. Um, the other question, by the way, that we always ask is, so what do you do for a living? Um, and my my challenge that I have given to myself is that in every new social setting where I do not know anyone, I must come up with a different answer. Um, and, and every so often, it doesn't happen too much anymore, but, but when people used to ask me, what's your name? Oh, it's Augustia. What does that mean? I have to come up with a new meaning every time as well. So, um, so take these little tidbits, pearls of wisdom with you and use them uh, at the next party you're invited to. Uh, Shubha Lakshmi is our next speaker. Her story is about her attempt to figure out where she belongs. Shubha Lakshmi. Good evening, everyone. Namaskar. Well, where do I belong? I've asked this question to myself several times, but I especially started chasing this question when I moved to US. Well, when I came here, I was not quite sure if I belonged here. People around me, uh, they were mostly from software. And uh, I, I belong to talent development, HR. And when I moved here, my personal, social, and professional life has suddenly and drastically changed. 
Now, people around me spoke software. And that, that added to my doubts more. Then I came across the famous Seattle freeze. <laughs> it again added to my doubts. Do I really belong here? Well, as um, I went ahead, I could feel that this question of whether I belong here or not used to come and go, you know, on and off. It was still there. Well, I just said to myself, okay, no problem. I still belong with my family and my friends. Although miles apart, I'm still a part of their world. But things were kind of changing here too because my family was miles apart. There was this weird time difference. And I mean, we were connected, but it was not like the old times. I mean, they didn't want to make me worried, so they would not share things with me that they used to share in person. Unknowingly, I was doing the same thing. I mean, yeah, all is well, everything's fine, do take care, good night. There was talking, but the depth of conversation was slowly reducing. I was kind of drifting apart from my friends and colleagues in India. I mean, we're still in touch on social media, over calls, messages, but it's not like old times. Now, it so happened that my existing bridges of connection were kind of losing, or they were yeah, missing in the fog. They were going in the fog, and uh, the new connections were still not built. So I felt more and more lonely. Well, the life was still going on. Uh, studying, working on projects, attending classes, going to movies, traveling different places, trying different cuisines, all was fine and nice. It was going on. Still, I used to feel that something was missing. Now, there was one place where I felt at home. It was in my husband's arms. It was in his company. He's a gem of a guy. In fact, today, this morning, when uh, I just rushed him, he said, no, I belong on this couch. I was like, seriously, you belong on the couch? Of course he had listened to my story when I was re rehearsing in front of the mirror. Well, he belongs on the couch. Okay, all right. Now, when I was facing this dilemma, I, I, I just dig deeper and I find, found out that, okay, the problem was I had stopped doing all the things that I loved when I was trying to fit in or when I was trying to, you know, adjust to the new life and taking on those responsibilities and stuff. I had totally stopped doing things that made me who I was. I loved creative writing. I loved uh, public speaking. I loved adventure sports. I loved all bunch of crazy things. So I had just stopped doing them. Then I thought, okay, let us start by revisiting those things. Then I joined Toastmasters. Uh, Toastmasters is a great place. I find it as a great place. When I go there, when I went there, I felt um, I spent some time with people who loved art of public speaking. The claps, the hearty laughter, laughters, and the constructive criticism, and most importantly, beautiful conversations. They all made me feel I belonged there. I started writing a blog. It helped me to connect to amazing people. I shared great thoughts and experiences with them. I learned a lot from them. It was amazing. That moment made me feel I belonged there. 
There was one more thing which my heart was yearning for many years, and it was to learn Bharatanatyam. It's a kind of Indian classical dance form. Now, when I joined it, I felt great that I belonged to this legacy of Indian classical dance form, ancient art form. When I look at my teacher, when I perform well and her face lights up, then I feel I belong there. So I think in conclusion, you know, uh, we, might, we cannot hold, to pe hold on to people no matter how much they mean to us. We cannot hold on to places because there are going to be political decisions, visa problems, and a number of things. We cannot hold to any of these things. So I guess we belong where we get to do what we love to do. We belong where people accept us the way we are. And most importantly, we belong in our own happy hearts. Thank you. The question that I've been struggling with lately is, of course we belong where people love us. But what happens when you find yourself in a place where some of the people tell you, you do not belong? And, and that's a harder thing that, that we need to find a way to answer. Sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier, can you belong in a relationship if the other side of the relationship says that you do not belong? Um, right this instant, my thought is that it is not for other people to tell me where I do not belong. It is for me to decide when and when I do not belong. Um, but we've talked about where we belong and we've talked about when we belong. Here's Kamna Shastri who wants to tell us who she belongs to. I came here not expecting to speak. I've been wanting to come to Storywellas for more than a year now. Um, but I want to start out by asking you all, you take a look at me. Where do you think I'm from? Someone just, just spit it out there. Like, what's my race? Well, thank you. That's the diversity of answers I wasn't expecting. Um, it's very easy for people. No one gets to ask me, where are you from? Where are you really from? Where are you originally from? And I crave having that question asked. Because unlike what you see in front of you and what you might think at first glance, I am South Asian American. I am Tamil. My family is from Tamil Nadu. And um, I've grown up feeling so wholly South Asian that sometimes I have had to reject the American part, even though to everyone else's eyes, they probably think I'm white, Caucasian, of some European ancestry. And the story I want to tell you is about how my entire life I've basically craved this belonging in my South Asian community and have never found it the way that I want to. And this goes back to growing up. You know, when you're young, you don't really think about um, how people are perceiving you. You just kind of go about life. I was a happy-go-lucky kid, um, but I grew up with so much Indian culture at home that I think for me, belonging is inherently tied to those feelings of safety and love that I got from not just my parents, but my grandparents, the Hindu mythological stories I was told, um, and the moments of togetherness with people, often over a cup of chai, which is like I'm obsessed with chai now, because that, to me, is the epitome of belonging in my life, because that's the coming together of people, um, and in, for me, I think the coming together of family, which culturally is the only place I've really ever belonged, because they know who I am. The moment I step into a temple, I remember when I was um, eight years old, I had 
a girl come up to me. She was my age. We'd gone to the Hindu temple in Bothell, the HTCC. And she'd ask me, why are you here? You're not Indian. You're American. You shouldn't be here. Then she asked me to count to 10 in Telugu once I told her I am, in fact, Indian. Um, and she, um, and I told her, I don't speak Telugu. I speak Tamar. I can count to 10 in Tamar. And at that point, um, I was about to explain to her my whole life story of, I look white to you because of this genetic condition I have called albinism, which affects your pigment production and melanin production. So while my parents can look totally identifiably Indian, I end up looking Caucasian instead. But at that point, my mom said, it's not worth it. Don't bother. I've had experiences like that throughout my life, and I think they haven't really, like, I'm not bitter about it, but I think as a 23-year-old now, I am still carrying that wanting to be recognized as an Indian person in circles of South Asians in, with family friends, um, where there was always a sense of distance. And maybe it wasn't that they necessarily saw me as different, but because I just couldn't feel like one of them, just because I perceived the visual difference so much that I felt like maybe they were viewing me as someone that was different. So I craved this community and this connection that I just didn't find. And then I go to college, and I go to college in eastern Washington, super not diverse. The school I went to was nicknamed White Man College. Um, yeah, so I went there and um, made wonderful friends, but that really only happened after my junior year, where I was going through a period of time where I was, um, the few friends I had made were not around anymore, and I was really stuck. So we had this club on campus called Beyond Borders Club, mostly a lot of international students, um, and they do a heritage program every year called um, Internation Celebration and just performances from all over the world. So I signed up because I um, love to sing and love my Bollywood, so I thought I'd sing Hindi song. And I signed up and we had these like dress rehearsals and the girl that was um, putting the whole thing together, she listened to me sing, made sure everything sounded fine with the track and everything, and then she said, oh, you're in my environmental studies class, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And she said, I think we'd be really good friends. Let's be friends. And this took me back to kindergarten, you know, that time when kids aren't judgmental, and they're like, let's just be friends. We don't know anything about each other. And this time, we were like 21, and it was still the same thing worked. She's still my friend. Um, and thanks to her, she was from, um, she's from China, and she was a president of Beyond Borders Club at the time. And somehow, because we just decided let's be friends and started hanging out, I got pulled in this, into this amazing world that changed my idea of the kind of belonging I wanted. All of a sudden, I was feeling this closeness with people from all around the world. My closest friends was a girl from Kenya, and then my friend Maria from Indonesia. Um, and the first time I took a uh, road trip with them all to Seattle, actually, back to the side, um, I realized that I was starting to feel that same sense of family and connection I felt growing up. These people weren't Indian, they weren't South Asian, they were from all over the world, but I had found that thing that I'd been looking for throughout my adolescent and short adult life. So then fast forward a year to my uh, final year of school last year, and I remember this moment where um, I went over to my friend Faith's house, she's the one from Kenya, and it was me, Maria, and another friend of mine, um, who's from Bhutan, and uh, we decided to cook dinner and made this horrible biryani, which looked beautiful, but if you tasted it, it just, it was like totally bland, no spices, and I had used all the spices my mom had given me, um, and yet it, I just, I guess I can't cook, that's the moral of the story. <laughs> um, 
But it was, it was so heartwarming because there's all of us from all these parts of the world coming together and making this biryani and then I'm able to share parts of my culture with them in a way which doesn't, I don't feel the difference. I feel like I'm sharing it with family. Then we go into the TV room and we're watching Ban Baja Bharat, which is a Hindi film, and dancing, they're just dancing along to the songs. And I felt this immense sense of community that I've missed my entire life. And I realized that in a way I'm thankful for not having that before and feeling that I think later in life because I realized that my sense of belonging has expanded to people beyond just those who I think immediately share my culture. Um, but I think it's still unresolved at this point because I'm back home and I don't have that same connection anymore. So I'm back to square one. And I guess now the question is, where will the next step take me and will I find that again? Thank you. So I didn't know there was a college nicknamed Whiteman College. I, I, like I've been telling you, I went to school in Chicago, but I went to IIT, uh, no, Illinois Institute of Technology, um, which we, of course, dubbed International Institute of Technology because, my God, there were people from everywhere were there. And it was, you know, only about six miles away from UIC, University of Illinois in Chicago, but really it was University of Indian and Chinese. So, um, so Whiteman College, huh, that's interesting. Um, but the other thing I wanted to, I was reminded of was this quick story. Um, we went, uh, four friends, uh, including myself, so three friends of mine and I, we went up to Whistler for, on a snowboarding and skiing trip, um, and on our way back, uh, at the American border when, when we were passing through and, and the, the immigration officer asked us for our, our passports, et cetera. Well, we handed him four passports from four countries of four different colors. Um, there was me and my Indian passport. Uh, there was a friend of mine who was from Hong Kong, but at the time Hong Kong was still an extension of, of United Kingdom, so he actually had a UK passport. Uh, there was a South African, um, white individual with us who, you know, would break somebody's stereotype of what a South African person looks like. Um, and there was a Filipino guy. So, so the first question that the immigration officer asked us is, how do you guys even know each other? Um, and of course our answer was, welcome to high tech industry in Seattle. So, um, Shaji is up next that, um, uh, for our next story. Uh, and the, the description of the story is, you don't belong, dot, 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 in India. So after uh, hearing that awesome story, I was wondering, I actually thought I was the last person because that was the same title, but for a very different reason. Um, I always belonged here. And for those of you who are either raising kids born in America or have um, maybe, uh, yeah, I guess raising kids here in America. I, uh, um, I was born and raised here. My parents came in the mid 70s and they didn't come as doctors and lawyers. They actually came, my mom brought my dad. So for all of us feminists out there, that was awesome. Um, and and I, so I didn't have this sort of, we moved to a big suburb and you're like the only Indian kid in school. I moved into an Indian community and um, I always felt Indian. I didn't really, didn't bother me, but it's funny because I hear so many awesome stories where people want to say how American they are. We almost feel, some of, everyone feels that they need to tell you how American they are. And uh, I always was, had to tell people I was Indian, right? You look at me and I'm Indian, but um, I had all like some, I mean, this is probably gonna be on, people can hear this, but I was a pretty cool kid. I was, I was a class president in eighth grade and then I took that to high school, I was class president, in, or school president, whatever it is, in, uh, 
high school and then the pinnacle of my coolness, I was in the Latin dance team in college. So for those of you who know what cool is, that's pretty damn cool. And I felt like I was trying to convince people I was Indian. And obviously when you look at me, I'm Indian. I hope you know, unless you work for TSA. I'm, in, I'm Indian and, and I remember um, feeling very um, proud at the things that everyone wasn't proud about. So I love when people ask me, where are you from? And I love when people ask me what Indian restaurant is best, and there isn't a good one here. Um, and, and it's because, especially, and I say this for those of you raising kids here, it's so easy to be American in some ways. Yes, you get looked at differently, and you always will, and your, your children will, if you're brown or all black or anything, are always gonna be asked where they're from. Um, but, you know, you don't get a connection to a place you're not born to um, automatically. You almost have to ask for it sometimes. And my beautiful wife, who's here, was actually born in India, but she came and she was eight, so it's not really that fair. It's not really that big of a deal. But she's more Indian than me automatically just because she was born there. And, uh, and, I, and I remember this one story that is kind of the opposite of maybe the stories I was here. I, was, uh, I went snowshoeing, which is pretty damn white, but I went snowshoeing <laughs> with some friends. They were all actually Caucasian at Mount Rainier, and um, they, they all burned in the sun because the reflection of the, sun, the snow on them, and it was just funny, I thought that was pretty terrible. But I didn't, and I'm in the parking lot, and a bunch of, um, uh, a crowd of bikers, I don't know why those bikers go up to paradise, but they just go there, and they go up, like a whole group of them, right? And that scares me, I'm not from Texas, that scares me. And so there's a group of bikers up there, and they want a photo. And there's three of us there, and so one guy um, with a handlebar mustache, you know, very, I'm obviously painting a very, a stereotype on purpose, but um, he's, he says, um, you know, we want a picture, they're talking, I can hear them, they're just, they're not that far from me, and uh, she's like, well, well, ask him, and they point to me, and the guy's like, he doesn't know English, and part of me was so happy. <laughs> I was like, yes, they don't think I speak English, they think I belong to India. And I thought that was awesome, because, you know, I have my brown skin, I love my brown skin. But my, the way I speak is always going to take, um, it's gonna be obvious. I, don't, I didn't sound like, except for the other, the underwear guy, the boxers guy. Um, I don't, I sound, I am from here. And I was so, I didn't say it, because I wanted to act like, okay, yes, I get to play the racist card, they're racist, and I can be angry about it. But I was actually really proud that they didn't think I belonged here. And I almost felt proud for my parents, because my parents were always telling me I was Indian, for their own security, actually. But, they wanted to feel that way. And I think they did do that in that moment where I was like, you don't necessarily have to be born somewhere to belong somewhere. And you don't have to belong one place. You can belong in so many different places. And I'm raising, well, not just me, that beautiful woman that's with me is raising um, two kids that are now third generation American, because my parents were first generation American. They became citizens well in the 80s, I think. And I need to almost remind them that they're Indian because we're in Seattle and it's so easy to get into your soccer league and to get into all this other stuff and do everything that's just so American. And our daughter um, is so proud to be Indian. She hasn't even been to India. I mean, at least I can say I've been to India, but I'm so happy. And so for those of you um, raising your kids here, uh, they're gonna be cool kids or probably are gonna be the smartest kids in their class too, but they, they may want to be Indian. 
And they may identify somebody else as American because they feel Indian. And the world may look at them as they are Indian. And some of it that's not good, but some of it is because India is really special and it's really nice to know that there's some link that goes outside of this awesome place, the US, because there's such a bigger world than the United States. And so when we treat it that way, we can actually enjoy the beauty of it as well. So I hope we all can embrace wherever we're from, how many generations we end up being here. Um, you can always be Indian. Thank you. I'm not sure if he dug himself out of the hole that he dug about being more Indian or less Indian after he referred to his wife as a beautiful woman over there. But good luck to you, buddy. But I, I, <laughs> I will say this very quickly. Um, there is a local actor in town. His name is Johnny Pachamartla. I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning it. Um, his father is from India. His mother is Native American. Um, and so he's always told me I'm twice as Indian as you are. <laughs> so, um, all right, uh, is it Hina or Hira? I can't quite tell, but Hina or Hira Khatri, come on up. Seattle is always home. So like some of you, I had not planned on speaking tonight, but I heard some inspiring stories, so I decided here I am. So um, I like being asked where I'm from, or well, I'm from Canada. I was born in Vancouver, but my mom's from Fiji Islands, my dad's from India. They had both moved to Canada um, when they were late teens, early 20s. My mom was 19, my dad was 20. I was raised very Western. I didn't know a lot of Indianness. We had moved to Issaquah. <laughs> That's where I went to school. I was one of five minorities. There was two black people, a Hispanic, me, and a Chinese person. So I didn't know any different. I didn't encounter any racism at that time. This is quite a few years ago. This is in the early 90s. Um, things went well for me. Um, we would often joke um, sitting around, um, you know, in high school, talking about the football players we had crushes on. And then I'd look in the mirror, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not blonde. I'm not blue-eyed, because that was one of my things. Um, I had always told my mom I wanted to dye my hair blonde to kind of fit in with everybody else, with all my friends. It didn't go so well. Having dark skin and blonde hair is not attractive. <laughs> so, but I felt like I had belonged here. But as I got older, I wasn't sure if I belonged here. So I had lived in Fiji Islands for a bit of time, because that's where my mom is from. I have lots of family there. I felt a sense of belonging there. It was nice. I came back here, a few years went by, I was like, I don't belong here. I moved to London, um, where it was, it was nice. I met other Indian people who had really Western attitudes, who didn't grow up with the traditional Indian attitude, and that was really nice. Um, and then a few years ago, I went to India for the first time. I have no family in India. I hear about other Indian people who go to India all the time. They have families, they love it. Here I am, landed in Delhi. I didn't leave my hotel room for three days. I ordered room service and I watched Bollywood, whatever little I could understand. I met a German woman who finally took me out to explore the city. There's something so wrong with this picture. Um, I backpacked through India for five months. I really enjoyed it. 
I, I tried, I went with the attitude that this is like the motherland. This is where I'm going to feel at home. I just didn't understand the culture enough for people to embrace me. It was really hard. I looked like them, um, but I wasn't. So after that, I did a lot of research. Um, you know, I kind of brushed up on language skills. I just, I read more of the mythology. Um, so now I feel like I know a little bit more, but India is not where I belong. And I have gone back and forth, like, where do I belong? I've tried different, you know, I've gone to a lot of places in the world to see, like, where do I belong? And I've realized this is where I belong. Because I have traveled around the world and like sitting in a cafe in Bosnia and somebody's like, oh my gosh, you sound really American and your attitude's really American. And they said that knowing that I had dark skin, dark hair. So, you know, and it's been really hard since Trump's come into power, you know, as liberal as Seattle is. I've had somebody tell me, you should go home. And I'm like, what, you're gonna put me on a boat to Vancouver? <laughs> um, so I think, like, you know, a little bit of political, for those of us who are not Caucasian, we need to fight for our rights. We all belong here. This country is made of immigrants, and we need to fight for it. Thank you. I have a feeling by the time this evening is done, we will have figured out all the different shades in which we belong or don't belong. But ultimately, that's what it comes down to, is that if you want to belong, then other people should not be able to tell you that you don't. Anyway, um, all right, final speaker, um, Monal Patak, uh, wants to talk about education for South Asians. Come on up. Monal Patak, or as my mom calls me, Monal! <laughs> that's a rolling pin right there, because that's how I roll. <laughs> so this, actually I wrote this uh, while rolling down 4th Avenue last week, and I heard on Kwao uh, the um, <laughs> fact that we're having this evening, and it's... Uh, on belonging, okay. So I wrote an essay on belonging, and stop me if you're getting bored. This is called A Failure of Imagination. The lorry driver is taking the road to the pass which leads surprisingly with its own familiarity to another homeland. That's from an untitled poem by John Berger. And I am perverse enough to believe that life elsewhere Simpler, that's from Another Home by Arundhati Subramanian. My father came to the U.S. in 1967, 50 years ago next month, and just a few years after LBJ had signed the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 into law. This law made a drastic change in the so-called national origins formula that our country had in place before then, whose primary aim it had been to prevent immigration from changing the ethnic distribution of the population. Imagine that. Such a thing could not happen today, right? At the time of the formula's formulation in 1924, the ethnic distribution here was 89% white and 13% foreign-born, according to the Census Bureau. That's what an odd 
premise, though, don't you think, to enact legislation that conspires to keep a nation stuck in a certain stagnant pool of people? So the hidden agenda of the Immigration and Nationality Act was twofold, and neither fold was altruistic. This is my reading. The president wanted to deflect attention from Vietnam while cementing a long-standing narrative, the race to keep up with the Soviets. And the industry titans of our rapidly expanding economy wanted a serious injection of workers that the US educational system seemed to be incapable of producing. So here entered from stage right the highly skilled immigrant labor force. In those 50 years since my father arrived from India, the US population has soared to 325 million. And while we're still only 13% foreign-born inhabitants, the percent of the population that's white has dropped to about 75%. That's one sign of progress, I suppose. That's okay, you can laugh at that. <laughs> the Asians represent 5.5% of Italy in the US, which is 17.4 million people. And since we're talking today about being Indian and belonging, let's break it down even further. At 3.1 million bodies, we subcontinenters represent just under 18% of all Asians in the US. In other words, 1% of the population. Interestingly, American-born Indians are only 13% of the total 3.1 million Indians here. The cool guy has got two of those kids. Perhaps something in our mango-shaped gut is telling us that the U.S. is not the best place to raise our children. But here's the part that gets to the topic of my essay. You could call it the condition under which we are willing to belong. We as Indians, this 1% of the population, we make, interestingly, as a median household income, 177% of the U.S. median. That's per the Pew Research Center. Uh, of course, not every one of us is rich. That's a reckless inference from the data. Uh, there are those among us who live in abject poverty, and others among us that lurk somewhere in between the suburbs and luxury high-rises, who have been ripped from the cabs and trucks they drive for a living and beaten to death. To say nothing of the pre-9-11 violence, even, uh, committed by white supremacists that call themselves dot-busters. Look that up, New, uh, New Jerseyans. Horrific. But this statistic, 177% of the median US income, is still far and away the highest income of any ethnicity in the entire country. Uh, next in rank are the Asians as a block in per capita income, uh, whose median income is 137% of the US median. Then come non-Hispanic whites at 111%. And way at the bottom, a few percentage points below Native Americans, are black people who earn 65% of the national median income. A pattern which many years ago gave rise to the trite but accurate phrase, wage slave. The Indian wealth and income story is considered by most observers to be a measure of astounding success. But is it also a failure of imagination? There isn't necessarily a correlation between wealth and a failure of imagination. But I'd like to offer this counter-narrative as something worth considering to make sure that we're not thumbing the scales like an unscrupulous gold merchant and thus, through our Herculean work ethic, in fact, precipitating humanity's race to oblivion. Allow me to clarify. I know that sounds... <laughs> Let my hair cheer you up, if anything. 
happen. I want to be certain we all understand that wealth doesn't accumulate by accident. The planet is, after all, a finite pot of gold, and even a wealthy Voltaire had noted back in the 18th century that the comforts of the rich depend upon an abundance of the poor. So if we forcibly footslog down the road of blind income generation, well, history has taught us that we can then quite easily get caught in the downward coarseness of counting only our money. And in that coarseness, we become a Philistine people who shun our capacity for subtle thought. And it's my belief that the greater one's capacity for subtle thought, the more profound the cancellation of one's insularity. In other words, if you live to work and count your cash, you lose your innate compassion fast. A few weeks back, I had the privilege, thanks to the local Anindo Chatterjee Institute of Thabla here in Seattle, to witness the sublime artistry of Shahid Parvez Khan, the sitar maestro and seventh generation member of the Imdad Khani Gharana, which is a house or family of music. He had dedicated his performance to the late Kishori Amonkar of the Jaipur Gharana. For anyone who has, who has not heard of these musicians, please do look them up. It struck me as that concert ended, and not the first time, not for the first time, that the US is not India. Who knew? <laughs> what I mean is, our community here has no long-standing musical or artistic gharanas. There's no such tradition. Just a few one-offs, a Vijay Iyer here, and a, a Smita Patak there. Uh, the first is a former, the former is a jazz pianist and composer. The latter, my mother, plies her art through a songbook of memory that stretches from Gujarat to the icy reaches of Maine, where she lives. You should meet her. Her insults against my dad and a soaring rag Gujaritori are legendary. It may seem unnatural, against custom, but we don't need the tradition of a gharana to produce more artists amongst Indian Americans. We need only to reverse the failure of our collective imagination. The failure that tells us, tells our children they need to strive first and foremost for financial success. The failure which puts such perverse ideas into our children's minds that they say things like, I love quantitative finance and accounting. Now this guy right here is the pen. Okay. That's, um, that's akin to the poor young white man who says, I love coal mining. It's one thing to love theoretical mathematics or landscape architecture, but it's unacceptable to raise children who love investment analysis or industrial labor. Such a child, regardless of ethnicity or culture, has been failed by their family, their community, their country. Let's attempt to break the insidious upper-middle-class system of belief that mandates white-collar professionalism of our progeny, the doctor, lawyer, MBA, lawyer, karana. And rest assured, we don't need platinum-certified family histories to encourage our Indian-American youth to pursue the arts as a vocation. You need not heed my insistence on this alone. Kishoritai said it best herself. There is nothing called a karana. There is only music. It has been bound into gharanas, and that is like dividing music into specific castes. One should not teach students the limits of this art. There are none. I encourage everyone here today, myself included, 
to extend, to expand beyond the limits of our self-imposed identities? Because there are none. Please, teach your children the value of a career in the arts and teach them not to be ashamed of earning less than the median U.S. income. Thank you. As I mentioned, um, that was our last story, Wallas. I want to share a couple of thoughts with you, and then we'll wrap the evening up. Um, in this discussion on belonging, one of the things that we did not talk about is the belonging of people who are displaced, not by choice, but by force. We, we hinted at it, but we didn't really talk about it. And one example I want to, I want to mention is from my own family, my, uh, my dada, my paternal grandfather, uh, lived in Punjab, as I mentioned, but he was in Sialkot in 1947, which is now on the Pakistani side uh, of the border. And of course, unfortunately, he had to pack up his entire family and whatever belongings they could carry on, on, the, on their backs, and, and they moved to the now India side of the border. And his younger brother lived in Jamshedpur in Bihar, all the way on the other side of the country at the time. So he, had, he basically made a decision to move to Jamshedpur, at least he had family nearby. Um, I can't imagine what his response would be if I asked him where he belonged uh, or, or what his thoughts on the, on the matter were. But the other story that I am reminded of, um, and, and this is you know, not firsthand, so I'm sure there are multiple versions of this story, but it has to do with the, the migration of the Parsis from um, the then Iran to, to Gujarat in, in India. And the story goes, uh, more of a legend, I guess, is that they sent uh, a pot of milk to the local king um, as a gift from these outsiders who wanted refuge uh, in his kingdom. And he accepted the milk, but he sent the pot back filled with rocks, implying there was no room. This place was full. This, this pot was full already. They poured rice into the pot, which took the space in between the rocks and sent it back to the king indicating we'll just find a way, we'll, we'll, we'll belong without removing anything. <laughs> a country like the United States is basically that, right? People keep coming in and nobody gets displaced. We are all grains of rice. We, we settle in amongst the rocks and um, just add more to this pot. Um, the metaphor of a melting pot, of course, is a common one, but here's a slightly different take on it. Um, as long as the rocks don't try to grind the rice into flour, I suppose. Well, with that, uh, we'll end the evening. Once again, reminder, Chitrangada opens April 28th, upstairs in the Allen. Uh, please take a look at that. If you have any questions about that, or Patuzwani, or Tasveer, or KUOW, or ACT Theater, uh, please find me or any, any one of our representatives. Uh, we'd love to chat with you. Drive carefully. Thank you for coming. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Storywalla's Belonging took place on April 23rd at ACT Theatre. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon. <laughs>